Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. He's the man some people loved to hate and others hated to love. It's Ben Baldanza, the former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. And he's Seth Kaplan, transportation analyst for NPR's Here and Now, who's universally recognized as an airline expert, even though he's never actually worked for one. Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. We're going to talk about the latest with the 737 MAX and focus on what really matters for the long term. We'll talk about whether traveling by air is evil or at least whether a lot of people will soon think it is. We'll listen to a real customer complaint against an airline and discuss whether they have a point or just kvetching. And we'll take your <laughs> questions. First, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Southwest Airlines says it'll be February before passengers are flying again on the 737 MAX. And Southwest pilots have said it could even be March. All this as new questions arise about what Boeing knew about the plane's potential flaws and when. Ben, we're going to spend the second part of the show talking about broader long-term issues related to the MAX. But first, February or March, the MAX was grounded on March 13th of this year. Back then, I remember people asking whether the grounding would last weeks or months. Nobody was talking about a year or more. Well, this is obviously new territory for the airline industry and for airline manufacturers. You know, the reality is there has not been, that I remember, a new airplane introduction as popular as the 737 MAX that so early in its life cycle had two fatal crashes that relatively quickly seem to be related not just to pilots' problems, but in fact, something wrong with the plane itself. And given that, I think it's unclear when this airplane's coming back. Certainly, February, March is a better estimate than next week. But who knows? It's possible that in February, we'll be saying maybe this summer, too. The reality is there's just a lot going on here, and there's two paths that are being followed. There's the engineering path of how they're going to make sure the plane is working right and pilots understand it well. And then there's the consumer sentiment and regulator sentiment that it's actually a safe plane to recertify. And those are two separate paths. And we'll talk more about that in a little while. For perspective, the the Dreamliner back in 2013, the 787 was grounded for four months. And that seemed like a really long time. Nobody died uh, in any of those incidents, but it had all kinds of issues. So uh, this obviously greatly in, in excess of that. Well, Beijing's new airport, Daxing it's called, is open for business. Uh, just a little bit of business for now, a small number of domestic flights. But Daxing will soon be a major global airport. Now, it's important to note, it's not replacing the old airport, Beijing Capital. In fact, uh, that airport doesn't just remain open. It's the second busiest airport in the world behind Atlanta. Uh, So, Ben, obviously, Beijing is getting a lot of new gates, a lot more runways. Uh, It'll be able to handle a lot more passengers. Anything surprising about the new airport in terms of what it means to airlines and passengers around the world? If you look at China and India... Those two countries are the fastest growing aviation markets in the world by a long shot. In fact, if you talk to aircraft manufacturers, they'll tell you that they're largely 
building airplanes for North America for replacement. As, as airplanes get older, they're going to need new ones to replace them. And that most of the growth in the manufacturing world is thought of as how big in, can China and India get. And the issues in both China and India are all about infrastructure. They don't, neither country has enough airports, enough gates, enough place to park airplanes as they have passengers who are eager to want to fly and have enough economic resource to take trips. So it doesn't surprise me that Beijing has opened this new airport. You know, if you go back in time here in the U.S., everybody used to think this airport out in the middle of nowhere in the between Dallas and Fort Worth. Why are they building all these runways <laughs> out there, right? And today, and today, like think about what's grown up around DFW Airport yeah. because of that airport. So it's not surprising to me that a city like Beijing would need a new airport. That China is building them. I think you're going to see China build a lot more airports over the next number of years, as you will see India do the same. And I think it's to accommodate, you know, what is what are huge populations that have a lot of demand to fly, but the single biggest constraint there is not enough places to fly from, not enough runways to land on or take off from. Yeah. Well, uh, in the wake of Swedish teenager Greta Thunberg's highly publicized sailing trip across the Atlantic and her big appearances at the United Nations and elsewhere, several reports have suggested flight shaming, as it's called, could be having an impact on airlines. Reuters says, uh, quote, Scandinavian airline SAS has seen passenger traffic shrink 2% this year, while Sweden's airport operator said it handled 9% fewer passengers for domestic flights this this year than in 2018, uh, both have blamed flight shaming. Uh, meanwhile, one in five people in the US, France, England, and Germany said they flew less during the past year because of uh, air travel's impact on the climate. That, according to a UBS survey of 6,000 people, 24% of Americans uh, and 16% of British respondents said they flew less. Uh, overall, more than a quarter of respondents said they'd consider it changing their flying habits. Now, ben, I'm a little skeptical of those figures in the UBS report, which we, we can talk about in a minute. But just more broadly, will flight shaming have a major impact on the airline industry? And are people right to avoid flying? Well, I think people have the right to avoid flying if they want. But I think what they're missing is a number of things. Now, I'm not a climate change denier at all. I believe climate change is a real thing. I believe the majority of scientists who talk about that. But I also believe that the people need to move and that for certain kinds of travel, airplanes are actually the more efficient energy solution, certainly more efficient than, you know, 300 people each driving their car across the country, right? And so, yeah. so I think that flying has to be put in the context of where flying makes sense. There have also been reports about possibly wanting to ban frequent flyer programs because they might actually encourage people to fly more than they might otherwise fly in order to meet that next threshold for reward redemption or something like that. And, you know, there certainly shouldn't be incentives for people to fly more than they otherwise would. I agree with you. I'm a little skeptical of those figures as well. Um, but airplanes are pretty efficient vehicles. They're burning less and less fuel. The engines are getting more and more efficient. They fly in thin parts of the atmosphere, though, and they do send out gases. And that certainly has an effect on the climate. But the reality is, I think, trying to turn back that clock up and until we can all design and use like a Star Trek transporter, <laughs> the airplanes are going to be the way to fly for a lot of things. 
Yeah, and and the main reason I'm skeptical of those figures is, is simply that I learned a long time ago when you're able to watch what people do rather than listen to what they say, you should always observe and uh, the, the numbers just don't reconcile with what's happening, right? Because air travel demand continues to grow. So if 24% of Americans tell you they're flying less, but meanwhile, more people are flying, something there isn't adding up, um, which isn't to say that you know people are concerned. I, mean, I think the, the key there is people are, are concerned about climate change. Uh, I, I, I just don't think they're actively avoiding flying uh, to the extent that those numbers suggest. It's time to turn back to the max. Uh, the big picture, long-term issues. We'll do that next. And then fine or wine? Uh, are, are these customers just moaning or groaning or do they have a point? Is the airline wrong? For now, sit back, relax, and enjoy your flight. This is Airlines Confidential. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. Now at cruise altitude, we want to get to our discussion about the Max. But first, let's take a question from Bruce in Parkland, Florida. Bruce. My question is, why don't airlines board their planes from the back of the plane to the front of the plane? This would seem to ease congestion in the jetway, just get people seated a lot quicker and kind of expedite the whole boarding process. Thanks so much. First of all, Ben, uh, noteworthy. Bruce calling from Parkland, Florida. I think for unfortunate reasons, uh, a lot of people in this country associate that just with one thing now. So I have to say, it's kind of nice to just just have an ordinary question from somebody who lives there and and, yeah, and realize that uh, that uh, life, I, I guess, to some degree, uh, is is, uh, is is approaching normal in some ways. There uh, to Bruce's question, yeah. So so you know what he describes. I mean, airlines. I guess to some degree do that, right? The last boarding groups on most airlines are about back to front. But the thing is that by the time they get to that, everybody who's special already got to board, right? And it's it's almost like there's nobody left. Uh, so why don't airlines just do what in Bruce's view is the most efficient thing and, and just board back to front and, and forget about all, all the rest of it? Well, Bruce is a pretty intuitively rational thinker here, because it does seem that it would make sense to board from the back of the plane to front. But I think people would be amazed at how much airlines have studied this exact issue. And there have been industrial engineers with stopwatches and companies like, you know, UPS and others great at logistics brought in to help figure these things out and others. And airlines have tried all kinds of things. They've tried boarding back to front. They also have tried boarding windows to aisles. So putting all the window seats in first. So everybody moves into their row and nobody's stepping over to others, for example, or maybe boarding all the people who have lots of luggage first. So they get their things in the overhead bin. Everybody else just goes to their seat. And what's really interesting is when you look at the studies of these, you can find a lot of them online too. What you find is there's no one way that actually is statistically much better than others. And what people have found is that randomized seating, almost like what you have on Southwest, you know, where you just don't even have a seat assignment. So you just get out and figure out where am I going to sit? That actually proves to be some of the fastest. The boarding from the back has an implicit assumption within it that everybody sort of moves at the same pace, settles them down, settles themselves down in their seat at the same pace finds a space for their bag at the same rate and things like that. And, you know, if you modeled it like that, probably from back to front is going to look the best. But when you see the way people actually behave, there's no 
one way that has proven statistically and reliably to be better than others. So airlines just do it all kinds of different ways. So they've said, look, if I can treat my highest fair paying customers or the people that show loyalty through the frequent fire program or recognize groups like military um, personnel or people having a harder time, you know, with, with mobility yeah. to let them all on first, I can be a nice airline and recognize those things and not really mess up my whole boarding. And they found that's generally true. So what Bruce says makes sense, but the data don't really show that that's true. And so, and airlines have tried it in all kinds of ways. And I would be willing to bet, Seth, that if there were truly a a single better way to board than others, airlines would absolutely adopt that. It's not like they don't they don't make any money with the plane sitting on the ground, so they don't want that that process to take any longer than it does take. But the but they haven't figured out what, that one's better than the other, so they try all kinds of things and protect the classes of people they want to protect with the early boarding. Yeah, I guess one way that they hurt themselves in that regard was with the check bag fees, right? Which which pushed all the board all the bags into the cabin, and then that did slow down boarding. And then you had airlines, of course, uh, let. By spirit, when you were there, uh, start charging to carry on bags to push some of them back below. Uh, so, so those kinds of things certainly, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I assume impact boarding speed. But that's just, uh, I guess, airlines doing the math and saying, well, we'll just deal with that. Well, absolutely. And this is be for a different show, but the whole idea for Spirit's carry on boarding pass came all around an operational issue is to there were too many bags being brought on board, which were delaying flights. So it was really an effort to reduce delays in flights, not to raise revenue. And uh, again, that's for a future uh, airlines confidential, but you're right. Uh, bags make a big deal in terms of how quickly people can board an airplane. Uh, well, do you have a question for us? There are two ways to ask. You could do what Bruce did. Call us anytime during the week and record your question at 305-379-7429. Again, 305-379-7429. Or you can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com. That's questions, plural, at airlinesconfidential.com. Uh, okay, Ben, so let's get back to the MAX. I'm picturing that this first MAX flight, when it happens, uh, likely on one of the U.S. carriers, you know, it's just likely that the FAA will recertify it but before others around the world, even though we don't know that. So, you know, maybe it'll be on United or American and Southwest. Picture that very first flight. What's it going to be like on that plane? Well, would you want to be on it, Seth? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, they, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, and here's how I kind of, and I remember right before it was grounded when it was still the flying into us, I, I, someone asked me that and I said, well, I said, you know, rationally, I would know that this is still, still safer than, uh, you know, than, than almost any other way to get around. Right. Uh, because even despite all of it, uh, you know, of course, you know, lots of safe max flights and, and, uh, you know, driving in a car, certainly not, a, you know, if you're, if you're driving in a car instead of getting in a max, that's, that's a poor assessment of risk. But, uh, but no, I, I don't, <laughs> if I, if you, if you, if you, if you, if you, if you ask me, you know, could I be on a max or could I be on something else? I would have taken something else. And I guess that's how I'd feel about the, uh, the first max flight too. Well, you mentioned the plane a little earlier that was grounded for four months and that was largely because the batteries blew up. And people got on that airplane four months later and didn't think, oh, I wonder if the batteries are going to blow up on my airplane. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, they just yeah. forgot about it. Yeah. 
You know, the reality, Seth, is I think most people, when they board a plane, don't even know if it's a Boeing or an Airbus, let alone a 737 and the specific model 737 that had the problems. So I really don't think it's going to be that big a deal. Now, the first flight will be a deal because there'll be media all over it, and they'll remind people that it's a big deal. So that's what will make it a big deal. I don't think to the customers it's going to be that big a deal. I think customers generally trust that if the plane is flying, that the FAA has done their jobs, that the pilots are trained, that the airline is certified to fly that plane. So it's a safe thing to do is to board that plane. You might want to ask someone, would you want to, you know, do you, would you want to get on the first max flight after everybody's, you know, has all this reputation on the line to make sure to do it again versus on a 30 year old Delta airplane, which they have a lot of those. Yeah. Flying perfectly uh, safely. Yeah. You know, and, and, and not even think about the fact that, you know, how many stresses have been on that airframe in its lifetime. It's a weird thing to think about that we put so much focus on this, but it's the right thing. Obviously people died in this crash. And so uh, at some point, and at some point, not long after the plane is successfully flying again, I think people will certainly remember the crashes. They'll certainly, the families directly and indirectly impacted by the crash will remember it the rest of their lives. But I think in terms of the uh, flying population, that plane's going to blend into the background like every other plane flying at some point relatively soon after it starts flying again. That's my sense. What do you think, Seth? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's just a question of, of how long it'll take. I think, yeah, the first days and, and the airlines have said, um, the United CEO Oscar Munoz actually told me, I, I asked him this, uh, what, what that airline's policy is going to be if customers don't want to fly. He said they're going to be very flexible. Uh, it'll be you know, almost like a waiver for bad weather, where as long as there's a seat on another flight, you can make a, a, a change at, uh, with, without any penalty. And I assume other airlines are going to be doing things like that. But no, I, I, I agree that it won't take long. And that's what it will take is time. I know people have asked me, you know, what can Boeing say? What can the airline say? And my answer has kind of been, I don't know if there's a lot that they, they could say. I, I just think the plane has to get back up in the air flying safely. And, uh, and, and then, and then, Sooner or later, uh, people will move on. The history has been that people move on pretty quickly. When you look at other tragedies, yeah. uh, they move on pretty quickly. This one is different, uh, uh, you know, unprecedented in so many ways. So I don't know exactly how long it'll take. You know, I, I don't know if it'll be just a matter of days, like it often is. Uh, but but no, I, I I agree that as long as the plane gets back up in the air and establishes a, a track record, people will. Um, be fine with it. I want to ask you, you know, quick, and, and yeah. again, and again, you might ask, like, what do they? If somebody says has the legitimate concern, I don't want to fly on a Max. What are you going to do for me, United? They'll say, fine, we'll put you on this twenty-five year old seven thirty-seven seven hundred. You know, with a with a pilot who's not nearly as experienced as the one you were going to fly on. <laughs> And I hope you enjoy your flight. I mean, they, they would never say that, of <laughs> right, course, but right. that might be the reality, right? You can understand why people are are concerned. Uh, like I said, in my case, um, I, my feeling was always, you know, before the plane was grounded, uh, when there were still all these questions going on, um, if, if I were scheduled to fly on one, I would have flown. Even though, again, all things being exactly equal, if you asked me which one I would have wanted, uh, I, I might have taken a different plane. But, 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 you know, this this will be a safer plane when it's back in the air uh, after all the scrutiny and 
and uh, and the fixes. Um, there was that New York Times Magazine piece, Ben, about airmanship, uh, a long piece, and and no way to really properly summarize it uh, quickly here. But but the idea being that um, among other things, that that yes, as you mentioned earlier in the show, the pilots had some role in these crashes. Uh, the plane certainly did, but the, the idea that perhaps. Uh, more skilled pilots could have prevented the crashes. Uh, and in that article, the idea that uh, that Airbus planes, uh, just because they're more automated, basically, because they rely a little bit less on pilot input, might be the better plane for less skilled pilots. Uh, this is all touchy stuff. Uh, just wondering, is that a legitimate concern that, that uh, you know, any pilot can fly an Airbus plane, but only... Uh, certain pilots should should be flying Boeing planes. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, I think that's a big stretch. In fact, I don't think it's true that any pilot can fly an Airbus plane. In fact, uh, when when I was at Spirit and we were converting from older MD-80 airplanes to the Airbus, there were a few pilots who didn't make the cut, who couldn't quite get their head around the whole fly by wire nature of the Airbus airplane. Now, yeah. certainly, you know. You grow up playing video games as as kids do today, and you know many people in their older than that grew up that way. And the planes like the Airbus plane that are fly by wire, which means when the pilot touches a control surface, he's actually directing a computer to send an electric message to a physical surface that moves a servo and moves that piece. Um, so the pilot's not actually physically connected to the moving surfaces on the wing and the rudder and the, um, you know, of the airplane. Whereas in the 737 and even the max is not a fly by wire airplane. The pilots are actually physically connected with cables to the moving surfaces on the airplane. And so it is more like real flying, if you will, on the, on the 737. That's a terrible thing to say. And I'm not trying to, you know, diss any Airbus pilots, but <laughs> it's, it's a, in fact, military planes are more like the Airbus airplane. They're all fly by wire, right? And, um, and many of the wide body airplanes that even Boeing builds now are fly by wire. Sure. So that's clearly the way to go. I don't think it's legitimate to say that anyone can fly an Airbus, but only certain pilots should fly Boeing. I think any pilot should know the airplane well, know the systems of the airplane well, know the peculiarities of the airplane well, work out in a simulator all the things they can think of that will go wrong on the airplane and drill it and drill it and drill it. And that's what keeps people safe is understanding what the equipment is and how it works. One of the challenges with the Max was they built this new system um, that they called MCAS to use software to to change the way the plane would feel to the pilot so it would feel more like the older 737s. But not every pilot, and certainly the ones who were in the planes that crashed, understood what that system was doing or how to turn it off or to recognize what was happening at the time. And so one of the big things that I think Boeing and the regulators are going to have to do, as you said, is, is convince people that they truly understand what went wrong and have really good solutions for how to make sure that that won't happen again. 
Yeah. And we should say that New York Times Magazine piece did note that even if it might seem logically like, uh, you know, Airbus is the better bet because of, of the points that the piece made, uh, you know, the automation, and all the rest of it. When you look at accident rates, the two manufacturers uh, seem to be pretty similar. So you add it all up and, and uh, you know, despite it all, the 737 seems to be uh, historically the roughly as safe as, as the A320. Now, Airbus already seemed to have a lead in the single aisle narrow body space, as it's called, these, you know, these, these short haul aircraft, 737 versus the A320. Is it going to pull permanently ahead because of this, because of all the ground that Boeing's losing right now? Well, imagine if you and I were running a marathon, Seth, and uh, that we were both in shape to do that. And, <laughs> and you know, up hey, until speak for yourself, like, then. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and up until like, you know, mile 10, we're running pretty close to each other. And then I decide to pull off at the water stop and uh, just listen to the radio and drink water for half an hour. Yeah. It's not impossible that I could still beat you in the race, right? Because I could get up and be so refreshed and just run so much faster and, you know, and make up in the last, you know, in the last 16 miles, you know, what I could do, but I certainly am, am making it harder for myself to beat you if I do that. And it, it's not that Boeing tried to do this, but Boeing hasn't sold a 737 max, yeah. you know, in, in real terms since March of this year when the plane was grounded and Airbus has been selling a lot more, a320 Neos and the family of A320s. So, you know, figuratively, Boeing has taken that rest stop yeah. while Airbus kept running the race. And so they've, they put space between Airbus has put space between them and Boeing. That's going to be hard for Boeing to catch up. Now that said, both Boeing and Airbus are very limited in how many airplanes they can produce. And especially going back to what we said earlier, markets like China and India just have a huge demand for growth airplanes. So it's really going to be hard for Airbus to maintain a lead for the long term. And as long as Boeing produces good products that are, that are serviced well and operate well and are efficient to operate, they're going to be a strong competitor in the marketplace. Whether the market shares sort of permanently go 55, 45 to Airbus, I don't think that that's really likely or that may be the case until the next big technological change that might bring a big new efficiency in fuel or I know this is a, crazy thing to say, but at some point when they have a plane that needs only a single pilot instead of two, yeah. for example. You mentioned Boeing not taking any uh, firm max orders. There was that uh, IAG, that's the parent company of British Airways, uh, Iberia Aer Lingus, uh, you know, announced its intention to take a bunch of uh, 737 maxes, but that hasn't become yet a a, a firm order. Um, l- looking ahead, yeah, that's like my that's like my intention to run a marathon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hopefully, for Boeing's sake, this intention is uh, is is. Uh, it's a bit more serious. Um, so, so you know, look, looking looking forward, you know, long term, because it, it's tempting in the world with news cycles the way they are to get caught up in the short term. A decade for now, to the extent that you can listen to look into, uh, you know, your crystal ball. What's going to be the impact of, of of the max grounding on on the airline industry? I think uh, when you Google 737 Max in Wiki and look at the Wikipedia entry, it's going to talk about this happening a long time ago. And I think it'll be, other than that, I think it's going to be a relative blip. 
I think there'll be a lot of 737 Maxes flying around. There'll be a lot of A320s flying around. There'll be a lot of the new A320, the Airbus 220, which is the renaming of the Bombardier C series, as you know. Uh, there'll be a lot of those flying around. And I think at this point, that'll be history 10, 12 years from now. It'll be a I, I, I don't want to say a non-issue because when people die, it's never a non-issue. But I think the facts around the plane being grounded and reauthorized to fly again, that will be, you know, sort of a, a blip in history. Ben, I want to turn quickly uh, to, to something a little bit lighter. Uh, in the last episode, we were talking about involuntary denied boardings. And I, I used the term involves, which airlines use. It's just short for involuntary denied boarding. You were telling me offline, I wanted to ask you to retell this story uh, here about a couple of incidents of, uh, of airline jargon being used out loud in airports in funny ways. You told me about one story uh, you were flying, I think you said Southwest at Midway recently, and then one story a long time ago on uh, U.S. Air. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah I, re- I remember. Yeah, so this, this these things fall in the category of, uh, you know, airline employees sort of in their own world and using lots of crazy jargon and sort of not realizing that the rest of the world doesn't necessarily understand what that stuff means. So let me go to the old one first. It was actually American Airlines, okay. not U.S. Airways. And you know, this was earlier in my career, and my wife and I were flying – back to Dallas when I worked for American Airlines from Hartford. And they made an announcement at the gate that says, this plane is being delayed. Our crew is illegal. And we've had to bring up a new crew. And that'll take about an hour. The crew is illegal. And everybody he, hears this in the, the gate. Crew is illegal. And everybody in the gate hears that, that the crew is illegal. <laughs> and so now we got to wait for a new plane. And I just, even as sort of a new airline employee, you know, just out of college, I'm like, that can't be the right thing to say. Right. And of course, right? what they mean is that they, is that they've timed out. They don't, you know, they, 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 right. they can't, they're not allowed to fly anymore that day. Uh, but tomorrow they will, of course, be legal. But <laughs> no, that's exactly right. It's just, you know, the, one of the ways that airlines stay safe is that pilots have limits as to how yeah. many hours per day, <laughs> per week, per month they can fly. And if you bust those limits, you're not legal to take the right. next trip. And that's what they meant. But when you just make this big announcement at a gate saying our crew's illegal, yeah. you know, that's, <laughs> you, you wonder sort of what they brought in from the last trip, you know, from Columbia. And then Southwest, you said, uh, you, you described this crowded boarding area at Midway Airport. Can you tell me that story again? Yeah, this was just a couple of weeks ago. So I was at this, uh, at Midway Airport, the gate, the gate situation was incredibly crowded. So at one point, you know, there's all these people and they make this big announcement that they just say, will all deadheads report to gate A18? And so, <laughs> so I immediately... Text my wife and say, I'm just waiting for all the Grateful Dead fans to sort of, <laughs> you know, ru- merge on gate A18. But why don't you tell people what a deadhead yeah, is? Yeah, so, so, so a deadhead is, is a crew member who is on one flight. They're not working that flight. They're going to meet up with uh, another flight. So uh, so this could have been somebody uh, who, who had to be uh, taken to uh, Baltimore to, 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 to fly a, a pilot, for example, fly from Chicago Midway to Baltimore, and then they they're just sitting in a in a seat like any other passenger, and then they're going to fly that fly the plane from Baltimore down to Fort Lauderdale. Let's say that's a that's a deadhead, but 
seven. Yeah, Absolutely, right. just imagine. But again, it's another case of the gate of the agent sort of just doing their job, not thinking about the words they're using. Now they're going to affect all the customers out in front of them. They have all the deadheads come to A18. I love it. Well, up next, it's, it's time for some moaning and groaning in our fine or wine segment. It's more Airlines Confidential after this. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. Massmedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. Beginning our initial descent now, let's first take a question from David in Brea, California. David. Just wondering why every time there's a delay, it's either a traffic control or weather. It never seems to be an airline taking responsibility for something that actually happened that they caused. Thanks for taking my question. And Ben, just to be fair to the airlines, I did look this up in in, uh, uh, DOT data. Of all flights, something like 6% 6% of flights are, are, are you know, airlines reporting that it was an airline uh, issue that delayed a flight. Uh, this is for the most recent month reported August, you know, 78% of flights on time, 6% because of something like mechanical. And then, uh, yeah, then you have weather and air traffic control and, and uh, all the rest of it. Late arriving aircraft, which can be an airline issue or, uh, or not. But I've experienced this too, where it sort of seems like, well, maybe there's sort of a combination of issues, but, but the airline is, erring on the side of, of, of blaming the, the issue that's not its fault. Uh, does David have a point? How do airlines handle this? Well, I think David suffers from something we all do, which is this idea known as confirmation bias, <laughs> <laughs> right? And, you know, you buy your nice new Jeep Grand Cherokee, and then all of a sudden, all you see on the road are Jeep Grand Cherokees, right? <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the same thing here. I pulled the same data that you did. And the interesting thing to me was that pure weather – for August 2019, anyway, represented less than 1% of the actual delay cause that airlines said. Now, there's another category that I'm sure you saw that they call the national air system. And the national air system means something was wrong in the national air system that made airlines do that. Airlines often call those things ground stops. For example, they won't even let you take a plane off of Fort Lauderdale Airport going to New York because of problems going on in New York airspace. They'll call that a ground stop and they're saying, we're going to keep you on the ground where you are and not even let you get into the airspace till we clear things up. So that those things all fall in that category they call national system. The, the DOT breaks that out further and within that, weather represented a little more than half of the national system problems. So that might mean that weather in New York is the reason that your plane in sunny Florida didn't take off. So the airline says we've got weather problems. We're not taking a plane off and you, you kind of call BS on that because you're looking outside and it's really nice. Um, But uh, I think the data are the right thing to look at here. And in fact, airlines don't really blame weather inappropriately, or maybe some of sometimes they do, but, but certainly not a lot. In fact, more they blame more their own problems, what they call the air carrier. They raise their hand and say, you know, it's our bad here. 
or arriving late because the plane got in late, which could be a weather-related issue, or they've canceled the flight altogether, which is even worse than a delay for customers in many cases. Um, and so the you know your likely most likely thing that's going to happen is your flight's going to be on time in the U.S. And then if it's not on time, the most likely reason is going to be something other than weather, um, although it may be related to weather somewhere in the country. So um, whenever we're delayed, we're frustrated. It certainly seems that the airlines are trying to get away with something by saying it's not really our fault. But a lot of times it isn't their fault. And when it is, they usually raise their hand and say, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll own that one and do the right thing for the customer. I, I will say a couple times in my life uh, where I was in a situation where the airline blamed something uh, not its fault. Uh, and, and I you know, felt that that was wrong, that, that, uh, that the uh, sort of the main cause was, uh, the airline's fault. And, and, and the reason it mattered, and, you know, this is probably what David's getting at is that when it's the airline's fault, you know, if you're stuck overnight, they have to pay for a hotel room, that kind of thing. It, it, it's, it's, you know, they have more responsibility. Um, it, in, in two cases, I can remember I cut, co- I contacted customer service at those airlines afterward and said, yeah, I mean, I can remember one where, okay, yeah, the storm finally rolled in, but that was after these other airline-related issues. Um, and, and they said, yeah, you have a point. And, and in fact, they did uh, do something for me, you know, whether it was uh, the, the, a voucher or some some extra frequent flyer miles. Um, now let's turn to that part of the show that we call Fine or Wine. We'll listen to an actual customer complaint filed against an airline, and we'll ask Ben if they have a point or if they're just complaining. Ben, you have a complaint. Yes, Seth. This one says, I bought a basic economy ticket from Expedia to fly from Phoenix to Newark, but was misled by thinking I was getting a better deal by purchasing a flight with United. My experience, I tried to check in online, but I couldn't get past the check luggage box, which I didn't want because I was using a small carry-on. Message said to go to the ticket counter upon arrival at the airport. There I was told by one of the attendants that I couldn't do a carry-on on a basic economy flight and must pay an additional $30 to get a boarding pass. A second attendant went on to insult me by saying it was my fault for buying a basic economy ticket. I did not, th- not know that United had insulted Stilled this practice on basic economy tickets of not allowing carry-ons. I thought United was one of the big boys. I flew American a few days earlier with no carry-on issues. I won't fly United Okay, again. so uh, several different issues uh, going on here. Sort of treatment by the agents that this customer is alleging, and, and then just, just all the policies. Uh, and, and, and for what it's worth, that is true that American does with their basic economy uh, uh, fare allow you to carry on full-size carry-ons. Delta does, United doesn't. Uh, and, and so you, you can understand that this can all be confusing, uh, but this customer, uh, is it fine or is it a wine? Are, 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 they, are they just complaining or do they have a, a, a legitimate beef uh, with United here? Well, I'm, I'm with the customer on this one. I think United need to do, needs to do a much better job of explaining to customers of what they bought. And so I'm not blaming United for having a bad policy or saying basic economy tickets are the wrong thing. But certainly when you sell someone anything, they should have a really good sense of what it is they're buying. And this customer clearly didn't since they were surprised by the baggage policy and the uh, boarding pass policy that they were faced with. You know, basic economy is 
the way that big airlines like United, one of the big boys, as uh, as he says, have reacted to very low fare carriers like Frontier and Allegiant and Spirit. And they're saying, look, we can't just match their prices because we can't make money at those prices. Our costs are too high. So what we can do is we can decontent our product somewhat which will have two effects. It'll cost us less to serve those customers because we don't have to carry as many bags in this guy's case, for example, or we'll get a little extra revenue because we'll make that customer pay for something somebody else doesn't have to. Um, or more importantly, what they really want is for customers not to buy the cheapest fare and recognize that paying a little more to fly on an airline like United is actually worth it. And that's what basic economy's goal really is. It's to make it cheaper if somebody only buys the cheapest fare. But it's really to say, you don't really want this cheap fare. You really want to pay me 20 30 or $40 more and get what you want out of an airline, which is a more comfortable seat, a more, you know, what I, what a customer consider reasonable baggage policy and things like that. So basic economy is the way big airlines compete with low fare airlines today. If you go back years ago, Seth, big airlines always used to match the fares of low fare airlines, but they didn't change anything. So you get to the situation where you and I were, might be sitting next to an, each other on an airplane and I paid $60 and you paid $160, but we get a, we got essentially the same product. We were sitting in the same size seat. We earned the same number of frequent flyer miles. We get the same drink or meal on board if that was the case. Um, and everything about the product delivery is the same. Today, if I pay the $60, it's probably a basic economy fare. You may pay the $160, but you're now getting more than I get because I get less than I used to get. And so it's it's moving the whole industry toward this idea that if you pay less, you should expect a little less. And if you pay more, you should expect a little more. And isn't that how we buy almost everything yeah. else? Well, finally today, we always like to end on a happy note. So let's turn back to something we discussed last episode, the collapse of Thomas Cook Airlines. Wait a minute, Seth. I thought you said you had good uh, I do. News. I do. Just bear with me. Okay, so the collapse of the airline wasn't good news. That was a mess. But listen to what happened to one couple in the wake of that mess. Uh, Andy Aitchison and Sharon Cook, no relation to Thomas Cook, I'm sure, uh, were on their way from Liverpool, England to Las Vegas to get married when Thomas Cook stopped flying. Uh, well, Delta flew them and 14 guests to Vegas for free. A hotel there, Caesars Palace, uh, put them up for free. And the wildest part of all, Caesars managed to get Rod Stewart, the real Rod Stewart, to serenade the couple during their wedding ceremony. He sang his uh, 1991 hit cover of Van Morrison's Have I Told You Lately. Well, on that truly happy note, that does it for this week's show. Remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com. That's questions, plural, at airlines, plural, confidential.com. From the Airlines Confidential Studio, I'm Ben Baldanza. And I'm Seth Kaplan. Talk to you soon. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com.